Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. We're traveling back in time to drought-stricken Los Angeles this week, as Jake Geitz is on the case to track down adulterers, murderers, and cheats in a 1974 neo-noir Roman Polanski film, Chinatown, this week on Zach on Film. The funny part is he actually corrects somebody in the film. Oh, yeah, because, well, and so, so as we start talking about the, uh, the story of Chinatown, man, there's so much. Steve, it's just Chinatown. Well, and here's the thing. (laughs) There is so much to get through. Right. That I don't think we're going to be able to get through it all in an hour. <gasps> just because, I mean, we're going to try to throw out a bunch of stuff, but just real quick, the character of Jack, uh, Jake Giddies, um, who is a detective and Giddies. on the surface, and this is really kind of, I don't know if you studied the idea of the themes of duality throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Did you? Doubles? Did mm, you notice any of no. that? Duplicity. There's a lot Duplicity. of that in there. And one of the first things that we see is that um giddies goes by a short name j uh jj right right that's duality right there jack or jake Jack-J. um when we meet uh noah cross um there's a little bit of duality there because you've got noah old testament mm-hmm. cross is a uh pointer to new testament uh, yeah. so you've got double there cross being a you know something of right. two items that cross and the fact that noah cross tells and and mispronounces Jake's name gets a get in what is it? British Scottish British terms slang. Yeah. It means somebody who's an undesirable. And in this story, Jake Giddies is an undesirable for Noah cross and what he is trying to do to take over. And, and the duality of man, there's just so much going <laughs> here. You know, the duality of when you look at this is um, Noah cross is not only raping Los Angeles, right? But oh. he, did or did not rape his daughter. daughter. Um, You know, there's the whole question of was it consensual or not consensual? And that's kind of the big reveal. Sorry, spoiler for people who have not seen this movie (laughs) before. Wow. It was right up front. It was, it was going to come out, but so there's this this whole, this whole idea moment from the movie. Right. Oh yeah. So there's this whole idea of this duality that keeps coming up again and again and again throughout the the piece. So the fact that you mispronounced the name at the beginning, (laughs) um, you know, kind of led right into that. So we had to jump on that right away. Of course. But tell us what the sto- tell us what the story is. Steve. Sorry. <laughs> uh Chinatown uh follows the story of uh Jake Giddies as he's a detective that essentially we can assume that he specializes in adultery matters. Uh wives come to him, say, Hey, my husband's cheating on me or Thing I see, I mean, he goes out and find him. Um, yeah, so div- that starts out the movie, and from there we get this huge sprawling uh, tale of adultery and murder wrapped up in a drought-stricken Los Angeles that needs water supply and the dealings of what comes to be found out as one man buying up huge tracts of land outside of Los Angeles <laughs> to that phrase has other meanings and other <laughs> uh essentially build a dam to make this land that he's bought worth millions more than he originally bought it for and yeah there's stuff. there's a there's a plot Right. Yeah, there really a huge, is. And this huge is, plot. This is what yeah. I find is really interesting. And, and this is a movie. First of all, did you like this movie? Yes. So this is a movie that really is worth watching about a dozen more times. Yeah, probably. Because on each viewing, you get a little bit yeah, more into get, the story. In fact, I, there's this one part that I kind of always knew that was happening. But I it didn't really confirm to me until I said this time when I sat down and watched it again. I was like, OK, I'm going to watch for this part and really see if that's what is implied. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment, but the underlying piece, I mean, so many people are focused on the, um, um, the Jack Nicholson and, uh, Faye Dunaway 
yeah. romance and the mystery and the thing that goes on between them and him trying to solve this murder that part of the big political stuff is really washed over. And that's the same thing when you watch um, a movie like uh, L.A. Confidential. There's a yeah. lot of stuff going on between the characters, but it's the bigger picture that's kind of touched on and brushed on that you're yeah. just assuming the audience is aware of what's going on during this time period. Um, in the case of Chinatown, even though it is a fictional story, it's somewhat based on historical fact in that uh, Owen, uh, what's his name? Owen, uh, da, 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 William Mulholland, Mulholland, William Mulholland, who lived uh, 1855 to 1935, actually owned the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power and actually built up um, the water supply for Los Angeles. So mm. that's true. And, and uh, Mulholland and Mulray, it's a twist on his on his name. And that Mulholland bought the Owen River to the San Fernando Valley after cheating the residents. And that's a big plot here is that they were essentially diverting water from Ventura County. Right. So mm-hmm. that they could drive down the land prices, go in and buy it up super cheap, and then build this dam that, unbeknownst to the citizens of Los Angeles, they thought it was going to bring more water to the city or reserve the water for the city. It's actually going to be pumped back up to Ventura County. Mm-hmm. To water those crops again, as you said, making uh, it a big land deal. But no, we're too wrapped up in who killed a uh, Hollis Mulray, oh, yeah. and that's what Jack Jake has been yeah. um, tasked to to find out. I kind of like this as a deconstruction of the Chandlerian themes the the one well, man with the god and the tough guy who comes. Well, in here's and the thing. Everything. Here's the thing. Giddy's is so wrapped up in being a detective. He thinks he's suave and he's debonair. He doesn't have a little hole in the wall, Sam Spade office, right? No, right. He has a very plush, lavish office. He's got, um, operatives that work in the office with him. He can afford, uh, uh, $10 watches that he can put under cars to see what time people leave locations. And yet really he's just a CAD work, do it, take any job for a dollar kind of detective. Right. He's the scandal detective. He's, he's, he's the jerk. He's the ambulance chaser. And it's and and it's really apparent when he tells the story about the the Chinese sex where he just thinks that it's so hilarious that he's got to rush into the yeah. office and tell his friends right away this ribald joke that really yeah. shows his character. And because, Matthew, he falls or he doesn't fall, he tries to follow in his mind. Mm-hmm. The cliche of what a detective is supposed that, to be that like moral code or that. That lifestyle, if you will. And right. because he follows that cliche, he follows it to the end, to the point where he misses out on everything until the very last minute. And it also kind of, it, it shines a light on, first of all, how out of date that cliche is, but more importantly, how that cliche may never have actually existed in the first place, which is really, you know, for me, the meta statement taken away from this is kind of, this is the quote unquote realistic version of a hundred stories that we've seen before, but taken on its own terms, you know, it has the expectation. Everything is about Jake. When Jake gets cracked mm-hmm. on the head, the movie stops until Jake wakes up. This is, this well, is yeah, Jake's as far as, in, as, as far as the storytelling method. Yes. Yeah. But mm-hmm. Jake in the story himself is so bent on, well, this is what a detective do this does. Is what and, a detective and here's does, what yeah. I'm, supposed to do with these new clues and how do they fit into this thing? And he's not looking at the big picture. He's looking at the small stuff. And that's what ultimately is his, is his defeat. And his, his, his one liners get him beaten senseless and get him in trouble. You know, that's what you'd say, you big dumb Okie. And then seven guys right. beat him down and kick right. him unconscious. Well, the th- or so, you, you'd, you'd have to be able to read, to read a letter. I'm right. Right. Like, or, or, uh, um, Mulvihill, he says, oh yeah, this guy should, uh, why would the Department of Water and Power hire him? He doesn't drink it. He certainly doesn't bathe in it, mm-hmm. you know, and so he's just making these jokes all along. He's really a low class detective mm-hmm. in this piece. Yeah. Yet he, Your wife got excited and crossed your legs a little quick, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, um, oh, he's so crass. <laughs> yeah, and it and it's really something that is a I don't know a lot more telling. And so I know a lot of people look at this movie and go, oh, man, what a cool guy. Yeah. But he sleeps with his client. Mm-hmm. Yep. He eludes the police. Yeah. He ultimately gets his girlfriend killed. Yeah. Um, and then in the later stories, you know, he's still doing the exact same thing again. Uh, there was a sequel to this called The Two Jakes, 
Uh, it was a direct Forget sequel it, to Steve, this. Forget it, it's the two Jakes. Uh, the problem with the two Jakes is it was supposed to originally be set 10 years after the original, set in the 1950s. I be- no, not 1950s, 1940s. Um, but the problem was they waited 30 plus That's years for the movie yeah. to be done. <laughs> and so Jack Nicholson was very much aged. He, he directed it himself. It didn't have, it wasn't well received. Hmm. Um, it, it didn't have the same, I don't know, the same spark behind the plot. Well, I think if it would have, see what the real issue is in this movie, the central hmm. focus is all about water, right? Right. Water is the driving force and how people were getting rich in Los Angeles over this water uh, rights to the point where they could do anything and no one could touch them. Um, Evelyn Mulray even says to the point about her father, Noah Cross, why did you bring the police here? He owns the police. He can do anything that he wants, including having sex with his, his daughter. Mm-hmm. And presumably we don't know what he's going to do with the granddaughter. Um, but you've got that in place. The two Jakes is all about oil and how Los Angeles was transformed by oil. If the two Jakes had been successful, there was actually a third movie called Giddies versus Giddies, or I guess the the real title was going to be Cloverfield, which was all about <laughs> how there was a grab for land. Alien? No, no, no. <laughs> it was it was a gr- uh, not Cloverfield, Cloverleaf. It was oh. a land grab to build the Los Angeles or the, uh, the highway system, uh, and a Cloverleaf yeah, being the and of course the man behind that was Judge Doom. Well, in fact, uh, in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, they made a reference to that third supposed story in the form of Cloverleaf, but. Nice. Um, yeah, so it was supposed to be something much broader and follow Jake in three different time periods, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, uh, and how not only did he change, but how did Los Angeles change uh, throughout yeah. the piece. Interesting. So I'm curious then, I, I talked about the, the duality theme throughout the movie. What right. are some other themes that, that you picked up? From story aspect? Yeah, let's focus on story right now. Uh... I mean, I think the uh, kind of uh, deconstruction almost of uh, noir uh, super detective film. Now you're just stringing uh, words together. Well, no. No, go ahead. That I mean, we kind of covered it already with... uh, Those baseball hopscotch Gettys. (laughs) Gettys moral code and how he tries to stick to that. I think also... Does he have a moral code? I think he has he a... He thinks he does. I th- yeah, I think he thinks he does. Because I think if you watch his behavior around um, men, it's obviously more crude. And then when he gets around his female clientele, he like, watches his language and tries mm-hmm. not to curse in front of them. So I think he has uh, a loose moral do you, code. Do you see him following a script? Because when the fake uh, Evelyn Mulray comes in to hire him, and she's like, oh, I believe my husband's cheating. And he just does a very deadpan, almost like he's he's recited this a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Oh no, you don't say. Right. Kind of thing. That he's almost tired of doing what he does. I mean, he plays both ends against one another. On the one hand, the real Evelyn Mulray, uh, Faye Dunaway, hires mm-hmm. him to find her husband's killer. Right. Uh, the water public works, Hollis Mulray, um, commissioner. Uh, and then on the other hand, he is also hired by Noah Cross to go and find this mystery oh. girl that everyone thinks that Mulray was cheating on his wife with. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's willing to take whatever money they want to give. One person right. wants to pay a $5,000 bonus. The other one wants to pay a $10,000 bonus. He doesn't have a problem with any of that. He has no problem with going. I mean, he has a big, there's a scene in the barbershop where he's talking about how quickly the, the news about Hollis Mulray's affair had gotten into the newspaper. And some guy next to him is like, oh, yeah, it must be a real big guy to go in and, and be a peeping Tom and, and do all this stuff. And Jake is getting really mad. And he's like, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, I work for the bank. I'm a repossessor for the bank. And he tries to justify how he is a better class person mm-hmm. than a bank repo man who's kicking people out of their homes. And he gets really agitated and upset over the fact that someone's calling him a a lowlife and a scum for doing what he does. I think that goes back to him uh, trying to riff off the stories of old about these morally high people and that were well-respected because he's, I don't think he's really well-respected by uh, mostly anyone in the film besides maybe his secretary himself and his two 
associates. Mm-hmm. So him trying to take down this banker was him trying to justify the work that he does and trying to show that he's not as bad maybe as people perceive him to be. Okay. I can see that. And I mean, he says it himself in the movie for all of his talk about, you know, oh, I'm a detective, bloody, bloody blue. Jake's driving force is inertia. What'd you do in Chinatown? As little as possible. Okay, so that does bring up, though, how is Jake now, and how was he before? And that brings up this concept of Chinatown, and what does Chinatown represent? What does it do? So what does represent? what does Chinatown represent here, Zach? And what would be a life-changing issue for Jake in dealing with Chinatown that sets him, that puts it different from how we are introduced to this character to what we presume he was like before? Uh, I think the the way that he's changed from Chinatown is that there were huge negative consequences to his actions in the whole dealing. Okay, so put it in a historical context. What's going on in the 1930s, 1920s? I mean, if if Jake is this seasoned detective, mm-hmm. he was a member of the police force for many years. He knows all the police people. So he would have had to have been a member of the police force for a number of years in Chinatown during the 1920s and through the 30s. So we have a huge influx of people coming in. Right. And a lot of them already there from earlier in building the railroads. But you have to think that Chinatown is a slang word not put on a portion of Los Angeles of people from China but people from China and Japan and Korea and Vietnam all being thrown into this one area. And what do we know about China and Japan and Korea? They kind of hate each other. Well, they kind of do. And you kind of, you just assume, and this would be the stereotype bigoted person, assuming that they're all speaking the same language. And so if you're a cop going into Chinatown or if your your beat was Chinatown, mm-hmm. you can't understand them, which does come up several times in this movie and is the big key to solving the mystery in the um, uh, the the water is bad for the glass and then the water is bad for the grass. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that is if you can't understand what they're saying, how do you know who you're helping and who you're hurting? Right. And so from a historical perspective in Los Angeles during this time period. Yeah, the cops were there just to kind of keep a little bit of law and order, but basically they were, they just let Chinatown be it, be Chinatown because it was too crazy and too hard to understand what was going on. And how did you know if you were helping or making the problem worse? And so you have all these different clans fighting with one another and et cetera. So in this sense, when we have the name Chinatown, it was this horrible memory for Jake, something that said, I can't deal with this as a police force officer. Now there may have been one specific event. So I'm going to go off and be this detective. The phrase, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. It means it has this meaning of this is all craziness. Don't try to understand it. Just walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Did you get that from the movie? I got a sense at there. I watched the last probably five, six minutes of this film, two or three times. And you kind of get that sense of, no matter what was going to happen after the fact of her dying, mm-hmm. that nothing was going to come of it. No, no, it was, it, it was just going to be bad. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that he could change to make it mm-hmm. good for all the work he's mm-hmm. done. Yeah. The other thing that's super, super interesting about this is that originally when Robert town wrote this movie, uh, it had a lot of narrative. It had a lot of uh, voiceover right. of uh, Jake recounting the events of, of what had happened. When Polan- Polanski got on it, and the reason why they ans- asked Polanski to be a part of this film is they wanted a international perspective on what this person thought American life was like during this time period. So the first thing he does is he stripped out all the voiceover, mm-hmm. and he said, we're going to tell this story without from the detective's point of view. Essentially, we're we as an audience are following Jake through these steps. And so we don't get cutaways to the evil John Houston twiddling his, his mustache and laughing in the dark. Yeah. Uh, We don't get, we don't understand. We don't get cutaways to 
Mulray talking with this mystery d- girl to where we know as an audience what's happening before Jake does. We're discovering this stuff as Jake is discovering this mm-hmm. stuff. And that's a really cool storytelling technique um, because it does. I mean, you watch a movie like The Sixth Sense where you're kind of seeing everything through Bruce Willis's eyes. Um, and so that when you get to that final reveal, it's like, oh, my gosh, that's what this means. In this case, Hollis Mulray has a mystery girl much younger than his wife, presumed to be cheating. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who are looking for her. The police are looking for her. Uh, Elvalyn Mulray is looking for her. Noah Cross is looking for her. We don't know why. So that when we get to that moment in the movie, when Jake has had enough of this joking around, and he says, you tell me who this girl is, and Evelyn's like, she's my sister. Smack. Mm -hmm. He smacks her. It's a shocking moment. And she says, she's my daughter. Smack. She's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. Smack, 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 smack. Suddenly, you as an audience member come to this realization of, whoa, wait a minute. Oh, crap. What, what, what happened yeah. when you got to that, to that part? Uh, I kind of just sat there for a moment and processed all of it. And I said, oh, dear Lord, that happened. And yeah. everything just kind of changes. Why? Because it the <laughs> for as somewhat dark as the movie was with adultery and murder and extortion and all this stuff happening, it got even darker. Yeah, when you throw incest. When you it. when you throw incest and uh, possible rape into it, and really somewhat for the whole motivation of the land grab and the mm-hmm. diversion of water and mm-hmm. all that is based off of uh ancestral relationship between a father and daughter. It just, it, it got, it got real and well, they just got really dark. <laughs> yeah. I think the first time I saw this and this is back when Matthew and I were in school. Yep. I was like, wait a minute. Does that wait? Huh? And it how took me can, a minute. It took me a minute that? to figure out how can that girl be both her yeah. sister and uh, her daughter. And then it's like, uh, oh wait a minute, oh wait a minute. But then there's also the other thing of was Hollis. Hollis obviously was aware of this, but Hollis wasn't having a sexual relationship with this girl, was he? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that puts a little bit of a weird, creepy spin on it. And then you find out that. Evelyn Mulray uh, uh, was this, this happened when she was 15. Yeah. And then, so you're like, oh, okay. So, and then on a second viewing, you're like, oh, Noah Cross raped his daughter. Mm-hmm. But then as you watch it again, and you may have to watch this a couple more times, yeah. you know, Jake is talking to her and says, what do you mean? You know, he's trying to get the explanation out of her and she gives him a look. Yeah. Like this wasn't, this was consensual. Right? Did you get yeah, that? Yeah, I got that at one point, and it's—I mean—it's never really explicitly stated if it was unconsensual or consensual, which is also another layer of weirdness, creepy. creepiness. Yeah, weirdness, creepiness, and the fact that this might have just been happening, and they could have both been possibly okay with it. Seems like they kind of were both okay yeah. with it, right? <laughs> yeah, and that. Uh, Mulray is still really old compared to her, right? I mean, he, well, if so, he was if he was friends with Cross, yeah, 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 for yeah, a long time, right. and she was fifteen when this happened, yeah. He, so, so he was, yeah, a so lot he was, her too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell because of the makeup job that they're they're doing on on Hollis, yeah, with the the gray hair patches. But yeah, you know, you go in and as Jake is in the, the office for the Department of Water and Power, and he's looking at everything. He's like, oh, so uh, Cross and, and Mulray knew one another, and the Secretary's like, yeah, the two of them together in the 1920s built the water system. They mm-hmm. own the Water and Power Company. They grew up together. And so, yeah, there may have been maybe five or ten years difference between the two. Right. But you got to think that he was in his 20s or 30s when he's meeting a 15-year-old who he ends up marrying right. and knows about the daughter who is now probably 18 or so, mm-hmm. you know, Mulray, Mulray himself has got to be 50 or 60 and Faye Dunaway's character has got to be thirties, forties, right. you know? 
so yeah, there is some considerable age difference in, in some of this. Yeah. And that, that does make it a little bit more weird. Especially if Mulray was having a sexual relationship with, with his the, partner's with the daughter. Partner's daughter's daughter. daughter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if that if that was going on. Right, now he may was. have just he may have just been taking care of her because she does say, Evelyn Mulray does say that Hollis was very understanding. Mm-hmm. He took care of all of this, you know. And they may just have been trying to keep the daughter away from Noah Cross, who we know is so mind warped on his own power that he feels he can do anything. And that's again, goes back to that duality that I mentioned earlier that Noah Cross believes that he has every right to rape the land and do whatever he wants to the land for his own gain, Mm -hmm. just like he has every right to do what he wants with his own daughter. Right. Matthew, real quick, because I don't want to exclude you. What do you remember Mm -hmm. the first time and maybe subsequent times that you see the the slapping scene of she's my daughter, she's my sister. Well, more importantly, I think that I knew going in that that was in there because of the way my brain processes <laughs> Saturday Night popcorn. Live or something. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know if it was Saturday Night Live or what it was. I'm sure it was one of those 100 greatest movie moments where I saw that before I actually saw the movie. And when I saw the movie, I expected it. But I didn't necessarily expect for them to put the depth into it that they did. Right. Because it's a, I mean, it's a weird subject and it's not something that shows up. Oh, yeah. It's something that, and even in the 70s, this is stuff that you don't normally talk about. I can't remember how many movies I've watched over the last 40 years that deal with incest. 14. Really? Okay. Not very many. No, I don't know. I Singing in the Rain deals with that? Yeah, it does. (laughs) High Noon deals with that? Inception deals with that? Singing in the Rain. I mean, it, that, but that's the thing. It's one of those taboos that doesn't show up in movies, not necessarily because it's incredibly horrible. Oh, my God. But it's just one of those. Ew. It's it's something that people don't even want to consider. Existing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. yeah. Because murder, I mean, murder, I think if I were to grade murder versus incest, I would say that murder is probably the greater crime, depending on the situation. But you see murder in every third movie. I mean, right. hell, you know, you can watch a movie and see a hundred murders if you do it just right. 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 Also, if it's directed by Robert Rodriguez. <laughs> but that, I mean, that particular plot, that bit of plot fits in so well with the darkness and the fact that nobody in this movie is anything less than a bastard. Right. Our protagonist is a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And he may be the most approachable person, even, I mean, and we've talked about in this episode how terrible he is and how unpleasant a character Jake Giddis is. But more importantly, he may be the most approachable character in this thing, with the possible exception, I think, of Faye Dunaway's character, who isn't necessarily as proactive, isn't isn't so much a character so much as she ends up being a pawn of other people's things, but... Yeah, that's unnerving. And even knowing going in that this is the plot point and that this is something where, you know, you're going to discover the great mystery is she had a, a child by her father. That's just yeah, horrifying. I, I think, I think honestly, the most approachable character in the film is James Hong. Yes, I can see that, too. It's a good uh, point. Which is funny because as much as I love James Hong, it's weird to see him. That young and in a very mm-hmm. super, 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 super minor non-speaking role. Yeah. And the really, I, I guess, yeah. You, you know who James Hong is? The butler. Yes. Do you know where else you've seen him? A lot of movies. Okay. <laughs> can, can you we'll just We'll just stop there. <laughs> no, no, no. I want him to say something that makes me not want to punch him. Uh, yes. Um, and I swear to God, in... if you say... If you say the ping pong battle movie, I'm going to kick your ass all the way out the Balls out the door. of Fury. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I did see him in Balls of Fury. Uh, right. But obviously, he was... Uh, scroll all the way down. Scroll much further down. Oh, he man. was a voice in oh, Mulan. Man. He was in oh, Mulan. Man. Uh, oh, he was uh, Lopan in... Blade Runner. He was... Oh, yes. He was the eye dealer in Blade Runner. But by far, his biggest role that everyone will remember him as... Is Lopan in Big Trouble in Little China, a movie oh, which I I'm sure you were see Cassandra's dad in Wayne's World too. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's where I really recognize him from. Yes, right. <laughs> he ends up having the kung fu battle. <laughs> 
And he's dubbed into English. How oh, how awesome, yes. let me ask you, how awesome is casting uh, John Huston, who we've talked about before because we've watched some of his films. Yep. Yes. Casting him as Noah Cross. Uh, pretty awesome. Why? Because he uh, I don't acts as exactly crap, scrambling he acts for the, the crap IMDb. out of it. He does, but he's primarily known as a director. Yeah, and directing eh, fairly wholesome movies. But remember the things that he might have directed, Zach. Like I don't know, maybe the Maltese Falcon. Yes, remember that. Was he? Yes, Zach. Remember, ah, maybe he, he, he wrote it. A he wrote it and directed it. That that kind of leads into this movie. I'm trying to help you here, kid. Work with Sorry. me for God's sake. I'm trying. I give all. Yes, that is why <laughs> casting him was awesome. Well, how does he approach? It? How does he? How does he approach the character, Matthew? Does he approach he, it as that guy in the corner twisting his mustache, saying, "I've got God the power to do everything." Oh, no, he's, he's got John, such a John Mother Evan Houston. He's got such he, a wonderful voice. I love him he as a takes voiceover. No crap from anyone. I'm John Houston. He plays it almost entirely straightforward. And there's there's a point where he's the, the, during the sequence where I believe he is intentionally mispronouncing. Oh yeah, Mr. he is. Oh, of course. He is. Throughout that whole sequence. If you watch that out of context and you think this is okay, this is a movie, it's a it's a detective film and he's the client, you can almost believe that he's the the man in the right. Oh yeah, I mean he comes off mm -hmm. as jovial, he comes mm -hmm. off as likable, he's laugh, you know, he's laughing, he's talking about yeah. oh, Mr. Giddis, uh, Mr. Giddis, I've, I've been doing I'm this John for so long, blah, 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 blah. Breakfast. <laughs> so that when you get to the end, it's like, ah, creepy dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did. He, he, has, he shifted to a whole level of creepy in that last scene. But no, but the only but reason he shifts dark, to a level but, of I mean, creepy is the, the only reason he shifts to that level of creepy, he is the same actor. I mean, he's the same character that he was in his first encounter with Jake. Yeah. The only difference is he sees his granddaughter and he's saying, oh, please, I just want to see her again and covering her eyes and going, oh, the poor child has seen mm -hmm. all this. The only reason why he's changed in your mind is, is because, because of, of the scene with yeah. Jake and, and Mulray over the, over the relationship of the girl. Well, of course. Yes. But that's now what makes him creepy know, at the end. You know what's behind that jovial facade. And he's the same character and he's the same John Houston eating his eggs on the, on the veranda. But then you also know that he has these horrifying, disgusting secrets hidden. And you're just kind of like, oh, holy crap. Everybody's a crazy person when I'm not looking. Yes, and it's uh, it's pretty terrifying. It is as far as the character goes. You may know his daughter if you've seen um, Angelica. Angelica, yeah. If you've seen, uh, probably most people would know her from the uh, Adams family. I know stuff. her from the Grifters. I yeah, the Grifters is really really good with her and jo I love John Cusack. John Cusack, man, I'll mm -hmm. read, I'll watch anything John Cusack is in. Yeah, even crap like 1408. <laughs> but that was crap. It wasn't totally crap, especially with the end, but yeah, it, it was still it pretty made bad. Me cry. <laughs> you stop with the blowing up of little girls, Hollywood, because I will come and I will find you. And I'm a very angry fat man. There's another theme that I wonder if you picked up on Jerks. in this film, Zach. In the theme of vision. Uh if you just kind of look at the movie through the this idea of um, how do, how are people viewing one another? Probably the biggest thing when we talk about vision is, is the, are the glasses, which is the key to solving the mystery. Mm -hmm. But notice how it goes back to the duality. Um, Noah Cross wears bifocals. So he's looking at the world in two different ways yep. uh, with bifocals. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a flaw. He has two separate and distinct views of the world. Yes. Um, there is a flaw in Evelyn Mulray's eye, right? In mm -hmm. her vision. So it sets her apart virus, yeah. from everyone else. Um, the, very importantly, Jack Nicholson keeps putting on those sunglasses. Yeah. Here and there. And occasionally one of the lenses will get knocked out in the big and fight scene. And then come scene. right back. <laughs> and then, but he's still got to, again, try to view this world in, in this different light. Yeah. Um, but probably one of the, the one of the things, and I had to watch it again just to make sure that it happened here, that I wasn't seeing things. There are two times when Everlyn Mulray gets shot at. 
The first time, uh, she and Jake go to the retirement home, and they're basically chased out, and the gangster guy is there, going to kill them both. And um, Evelyn Mulray races up in her car. Jake jumps on the side ra- on the side runner, and they go off. And the Roman Polanski um, guy shoots his gun. Mm-hmm. We cut to them in the car, and there is a big bullet hole in the window where Jake is sitting. And if you look, Faye Dunaway is rubbing and constantly rubs her left eye a lot throughout this movie. Keeps, and especially in that scene, she keeps touching like her left eye and is rubbing it, rubbing it, rubbing it. At the very end of the film, Evelyn Mulray gets shot at again, this time by the police. Only this time, the bullet finds its target, and she gets shot through the left eye. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't even catch yeah, that. Yeah, this was one that I was like, I knew she always got shot through the head in, in like the left eye. Yeah, right. And this goes back into the vision, because even um, uh, Noah Cross covers uh, the, da- the granddaughter's eyes so that she doesn't see this horrific stuff. But she gets shot through the left eye, and I was always like, well, I seem to always remember that she's doing something with her eye, 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 eye. And then they talk about this flaw in her eye, this flaw in her character. Mm-hmm. And then that scene where they're driving away and she's rubbing and she's touching her left eye around her left eye. And I'm like, Ooh, that's a little bit of creepy foreshadowing if it was really planned that way. Now here's the, the weird part. Um, this movie was rewritten and rewritten a lot. Um, Bob Evans, a famous producer. Um, I would suggest, I tried to find it, but it's actually at, at work. Uh, but you can come by the office and I'll give it to you. You've got to watch this fantastic documentary about Bob Evans called the kid stays in the picture. <laughs> it will tell you everything you need to know I about knew Bob you were Evans. Say that. It is I a great it. documentary. Mainly, be- the first time I picked up on it was because of how great the the they took still photographs and and used two and a half D to create some real life to these still pictures. Oh yeah, but the mm-hmm. fact that Bob Evans' life is just he's he's a kid. Who, well, it's not that super crazy, but it's just the fact that everything falls in his lap, and he became the biggest producer in Hollywood and still is today. I would probably imagine. Um, even though he hasn't produced in years, but go watch the kid stays in the picture. It's a fantastic documentary. It really is. Um, but in his version of the script that Robert town wrote, there's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Polanski and Nicholson were like, no, 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 we don't want to do this. This and movie can't end happily. No, it can't. Not in, not in this dark era of the seventies. You can't have a happy ending. And so, um, Bob just kind of washed his hand of the movie. And Nicholson and Polanski sit, sat down just a few days before they filmed the final scene and rewrote the ending that included the famous line, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. Yeah. And so I wonder how much of that was actually planned because we don't know what order the film was shot. Right. But, you know, to kind of put all that foreshadowing in there ahead of time is, is really kind of phenomenal. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting that they wrote that. Also, I guess... Uh, Nicholson wrote a lot of his own dialogue in this movie as well. You can kind of tell too. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, go back and watch this from this idea of short sightedness from Jake's part. Mm-hmm. Go back and watch it from this idea of vision. Go out and look at it from this duality uh, aspect. And you'll find a lot of themes that really run throughout this. And it really requires, and some of the stuff I didn't even pick up on until probably the 20th or 30th viewing of it. So it's really worth seeing a lot of times. Why don't we take a quick, as my voice is failing here, why don't we quick take a quick uh, break here, uh, Zach, and give a shout out to some of the people that helped make this show possible. Of course, we would like to think. I could do that for you. (laughs) No. Jerk. (laughs) Uh, I'd like to thank Terry Ullis, Ivan Peterson, (laughs) Daniel Weiss, Matt Lowe, Brian Ganninger, Jordan Medina, Christopher Hudspeth, Christopher Thomas Christopher, Christopher Hudspeth and Thomas Christopher, Thomas uh, Christopher Hudspeth, <laughs> Michelle Nielsen and Joseph Carudo. And if you'd like to have your name horribly mispronounced and mangled by Zach, most of those are pretty good. Good luck Ooh, with that. Yes. It'll probably be me. Yes, <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt Lowe, you did a fine job of that. Uh, Jordan Medina <laughs> yes. is also fine. More Listeners, you can find out how you can nice help support this podcast and many of the other fine things that we do here at Major Spoilers by heading over to Majorspoilers.com. Uh, become, consider becoming a uh, recurring subscriber to Major Spoilers and all the things that we do. And eventually, hopefully in June, this is the deadline is in June, I want to launch that members-only site, and we've got a... Special podcast, even before we reach our, our ultimate goal, we've got uh, special audio files that you can download uh, that are bonus tracks is what it's called. Bonus tracks, and the first one's on Star Wars oh, that we sat down and recorded a couple of weeks ago, pew, so you pew, can go check that out. Um, 
So all of that is over at Majorspoilers.com. Everyone who becomes a $10 a month a recurring subscriber gets their name shouted out in one of the many Major Spoilers podcasts. You can find more of our podcasts over at Majorspoilers.com or on iTunes under the Major Spoilers Podcast Network Master Feed. Let us talk about some of the technical parts of this Good. movie. I have more to talk about. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about uh, Jake getting his nose cut? Sure. That's pretty controversial in itself. You know what happens to nosy guys? And that was played by Roman Polanski. Right. And um, apparently Polanski and Nicholson just fought and bickered a lot on this film. And I don't know why Polanski decided to become, to put himself in the movie. Um, not a terrible actor, but, you know, here's a line probably written by Nicholson saying, oh, Mulvihill, who's the midget that you got with you? And that's kind of a dig at the director who's playing this role. Yeah. Um, and you have the director shoving a real knife up in your nose and threatening to slice it. Could really happen. Now, of course, it wasn't. The knife was uh, rigged in such a way that if you put it in one way up his nose and you pulled out that the blade would collapse mm -hmm. and it wouldn't hurt anybody. And there's a little tube. You can actually see it if you watch it frame by frame. A little tube of blood. That someone off camera is squirting up into Jake's face, into Jack's face. But the thing is, if you had the knife turned around the other way, it wouldn't retract and it really it would have cut him. Nicholson's nose. And apparently in between takes, Polanski was rotating this thing around and was like, oh, now I can't remember which way this goes. And uh, oh, man, I sure hope this is the right way. And really <laughs> causing a lot of agitation in Jack to where when they are doing that scene and Jake is there pinned up against the fence and he knows this is going to happen, that could be real fear that you see in his eyes. Right. Probably not a directing method that you should, <laughs> you should use. No. Uh, Zach, but it uh, is certainly what they, <laughs> what they optioned to go with uh, in this piece. Especially if you're shooting your uh, film out of sequence. Yes. Yes, so yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's like a huge uh, filming break while your star actor heals his nose so you can yes. shoot the first part of the film. Yes. So what do you got for us, Zach? Um... First off, Chinatown is filled with super long, super long takes. Okay. And is that a bad thing? No, it was wonderful. Did you pay attention I to how they it. stage things in, in those super long takes? Yeah. I mean, look at how when Jake is having a conversation with the fake Mrs. Mulray in his office, mm -hmm. how you'll cut to a shot of, of, of Jake and then over his shoulder is one of his associates. So that when it's time to have that conversation, you don't have to cut to his associate. Just right. do a little rack focus or hopefully they're in that wide shot, uh, uh, deep uh, depth of, of field that you can get them both composed at the same time. The whole conversation that Jake and Noah Cross have at, at the lunch table is done that take. is yeah. one giant take yeah, as and, well. And then and then in that same scene when uh, Jake gets up and um, and then he sits back down and then Cross eventually gets back up to quite the band mm -hmm. that turns into one take when they shoot back on the table and so cross and jake and then the butler mm -hmm. are all like in the triangle mm -hmm. pattern of uh, good composition yeah and so and that was great because you got cross speaking out to the band and jake still eating his supper and the butler just standing there still like always right right, right. and then eventually when it turns to Jake's point of talk, Cross turns around mm -hmm. and then Jake turns. It was that that scene was wonderful. Okay, very good. Uh, they use a lot of that throughout this movie. They did. What else do you notice about this movie from the technical side that helps to reinforce some of the story themes or ideas, or even helps convey a message to our audience? Um, one thing I picked up on uh, during that sequence when they go to the retirement home mm -hmm. is how. They did action in this film without any edits to convey like super uh, quick action or super aggressive action. Uh, there's that that scene when Jake is fighting Mulvihill. Yeah, Mulvihill, and they're ramming against each other, got the door, right, and he's right, kneeing right. him and punch him in the stomach. There's no there's no edits in there. there, to, actually, there's is a, there is there's there, a, I mean there's, there's not, one because when the um, the head of the retirement home goes to reach for the gun. They ki cut right. to Jake kicking, kicking the away. gun away. But yeah, yeah, when the but slamming, not, the punching, yeah, the coat over the head. Someone's yeah. close head hitting the door. Right, right. And it's still, 
looks really believable, mainly because they cover up, especially when they're kicking him in the stomach. You're not actually seeing him right. kicking the stomach. You're just seeing the motion and the body jump. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it one, plays up that violence is certainly can happen in this world. But I think, two, by not showing close-up action, but showing it, uh, it in a wide fashion, it takes the importance off of the violence to an extent. Because, I mean, the point of this movie was not an action film. It was a mystery with multiple layers of the plot. And Mm so by not doing quick cut action, I think it pulls the intensity. Well, at least it pulls the focus off of like action, action. Sure, sure, sure. And I thought that was really well handled, especially in the final scene when... Evelyn's driving away and being shot, and that scene could have been, I mean, oh, cut, yeah, up in a, cut up in yeah. a way that you get close to the gun, just bullets flying into her car. And isn't it more suspenseful, though? I mean, oh, no, I agree. using that suspense where, um, and I forget if it's Escobar, no, it's his, Escobar shoots first, but then uh, the other guy right. uh, shoots, shoots. Um, and you're shooting it from there, you know, from front onto them, mm-hmm. and the car's already down the street. And then after the lieutenant or whoever, the captain or whoever the, the other guy is, the detective shoots, shoots, then you cut and you don't cut to a close up of the car. No. You cut to a wide shot, basically over the shoulder mm-hmm. of everyone standing in the street and you see the car slow down. You honk. hear the horn honk and it's like beat, 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 beat. Girl starts screaming mm. out of her, out of her mind. And then you cut and to them start, running like, up. Yeah, start yeah. slowly like walking and then going, which also takes into the fact of the film of this is essentially shown through Jake's point of view. Yeah. And so it wouldn't make sense at the end of the film to start jumping to Evelyn in the car right. from a narrative standpoint. Right. And it was way better by doing essentially yeah. two takes in the last six minutes of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably could be, I'm sure. I don't know about um, you, Matthew, but as I mentioned before in the first segment, I like the fact that we as the audience are, are led along uh, with Jake throughout this entire movie so that his discoveries are our discoveries and his, I, his thinking is, is our thinking. I do like that. And it's unusual to see that, especially these days. You see it in Blade, you them, see it in Blade Runner. It's done there yeah. as well. To see, but to have the point of view attached to the specific character is something that really helps, to, well, specifically with a mystery, but it really helps to kind of humanize your character, even if he is a jack wagon. But I do, I think I do find problem in it, and I wonder if the film would be better or worse if it were more of an omniscient point of view, where we cut away and we see John Houston going, wah, 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 Gitz will never know that I banged her, wah, wah, wah. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't think it would work that way. I, don't I think, think it would, it would be less of a film. I don't necessarily think it would be better. I think it would be a completely different sort of experience. And I wonder, you know, quantitatively – how much input that perspective, that spe- that specificity of perspective, has in the success and the long-lasting success of this film? Well, the other thing, too, that from a technical side is because we're telling this from Jake's perspective, it means that Jack has to be in every single scene of the movie. Right. Which right. is a huge scheduling nightmare for someone who's trying to do this. Now, if it's one person, sure, it's not that big of a deal. Right. Um, but two people, yeah, it starts to become more complicated and so on and so on and so forth. But think about how that taxes your actor when you're going to have them in every single scene of the movie, every single scene of the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, there's not a single scene that we don't have Jake in this in this piece. And so that that can wear on your actor. It can tire it can and, and it can really stress out your actor. Um, so I don't I have not been able to find anything that says what the shooting schedule was. I mean, I didn't do a whole lot of research. I'm sure I could find it. But uh, it was a lot of it was shot in and around Los Angeles. Um. But you have to imagine that for one actor to be in that whole almost two hour long movie, uh, that it can be taxing over time. So kind of keep that in mind if you're going to pull a stunt like that. Yeah. What else did you notice? What about color? Uh, as in color grading? Well, there really isn't. I, mean, I really guess you could say I color mean, really grading. Sure there's, sure, there's color grading in this. Uh, I graded B plus. And if if you want to talk. I mean, like lighting. You want to talk? No. Well, we can talk lighting first, but I'm talking about overall color. Uh, it's dark. Well, okay. So, okay. So, as we talk about the lighting, as we go deeper into the story, watch how the lighting gets darker 
and darker and darker. And there are a lot of times where you can light your actors so that their eyes, and this is kind of a classic slash of light across the face so that their eyes are illuminated kind of look. Mm -hmm. But notice as the film goes on and on and on and on and on, suddenly it becomes a darker film in tone, but also a darker film in lighting to the point that when you're in that uh, bungalow or when you're in that house and he's smacking her around, um, he doesn't hit his mark and hit uh, more of his face is in the shadow than it's not in the, yeah. in the light. And so it, it happens that way throughout the rest of that film. The other thing to note too, as far as color goes, is that they're really using a lot of yellows and browns to really show how dusty and dry Los Angeles is. Uh, throughout the piece. Mm, and yeah, when you get is. into outdoor scenes, they're really overly bright. And a, a lot of that could be just the fact that of the, the technology of the time period right. uh, forces the outside scenes to be overly bright. I mean, if you look at like TV shows like the Rockford Files, or if you look at um, um, the good, the bad and the ugly, the reason why Clint Eastwood squints and why Rockford squints all the time is not because that's the look that they're trying to develop. It's because you're flooding their faces with all, you know, 10,000 kilowatts of light and they have to squint their eyes to block out. And so if you're shooting out in sunny Los Angeles down in the Gulf of the LA river or something, um, you've got a lot of light pouring into your face. Yeah. You're going to, it's going to be overly harsh and overly dramatic in a lot of ways. Um, so from the color side, notice the yellows and browns that are used throughout. Not only is that somewhat typical of a color scheme that you might find in the time period, but also to help draw on this this notion of this is an older film uh, that's evidence in the opening credits when they're showing the old, um, you know, credits at the beginning, credits, the old yeah. sepia tone backdrop, but also to give you this feel of a dry desert area. Did you, what do you notice about lines in the piece? And I'm not talking about lines that are delivered, but right, no. um, lines that you see throughout the, throughout the picture. When, I know, have you ever been to Los Angeles? Yeah. So what are some buildings that were around in the 1930s and 40s that would really stand out? Oh, I have no idea. So you would have the, the police, um, you know, the big tall police uh, headquarters mm -hmm. was really tall. You had a lot of, you did have a lot of vertical buildings in that time period. But Polanski chose not to show a single tall building in this, in this movie. Everything shot very flat and horizontal, um, using a lot of horizontal lines to again, convey the flatness and the desperate desolation that everyone is in the movie. He also, kind of going along with that, opted to shoot everything except for just a couple of scenes at eye level mm -hmm. to put everybody on the same playing field, that no one was superior or above anyone else throughout the entire movie. Anything else that you noticed on the technical side? Uh, Lighting-wise or anything like that? You've got a bunch of notes there. Uh yeah, I mean the lighting was uh, very contrasty. Much they like were that. all like pointing yeah. at camera at stuff, uh, and it made pictures uh, on the film. Contrasty, kind of like noir. I mean, yeah, much yeah. like noir films yeah. were. Um, you said in the beginning neo noir. What right. what does that mean? Uh, I looked that up. <laughs> that's noir with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Whoa, that's deep. Whoa. Uh, so. What I it seemed the wiki to tell me was that neo-noir is our our films after the fact of the noir movement sure. that use elements from noir films but then play off them and kind of dissect them in a way. Sure. Right? You can look at a lot. Yeah. And so we've already known what some noir films are. We looked at the right. Maltese Falcon. We'll see Casablanca soon. We'll watch some uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, thrillers. But then when you hit the 1970s and the 80s with Polanski and De Palma, they're taking that idea of noir to a new level. Mm -hmm. Neo meaning new. Uh, they're taking it to a new level of, of noir. So, yeah. Okay. Anything else? Uh, Matthew, uh, you want to add on to anything that we've talked about? No. I like the car scenes. Yeah, I like the car chases of... The camera being in the car, mm -hmm. yeah. and especially that scene of him driving through the orange grove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the camera is in the car, and so it's yeah. obviously Nicholson driving. And then he slams it into reverse. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then slams it into a tree. Yeah. And notice that the tree, and I don't know if this was on all the trees or if it was something in the orange groves that was typical, but you notice that that tree had a metal band around it Mm -hmm. to protect the tree in case somebody hit it. (laughs) That may have been intentional. I also love the fact that they misspelled trespassing. Well, (laughs) so again... No, I mean the characters, the stupid yes, people. In the, yes. No, no tree panning. And maybe you know, or maybe you don't know when Nicholson says, uh, you know, get your hands off me, you damn Oki, or you dumb Oki, or something like that. You big dumb Oki. You know what that is in reference to? Tell us. Uh, the migration of people from Oklahoma to yes. California? Yes, during the Dust Bowl days, yeah. yes. Okay, so just making sure. Of wrath, my friend. Well, grapes yeah, Grapes of Wrath, yeah. of wrath is where, they, where Steinbeck brings it up, but they were actually, you know, that's when they were called the Okies during that time period, and you had a lot of them migrating and a lot of them going to the orange groves and trying to get work. So, yeah, although I would say that the uh, Chinatown does take and put a, a, a continues to put a, a negative spin on the term Oki and the fact that the two or three people that are the hired hands are somewhat, uh, somewhat stupid. Oh, a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, sometimes you have to go through life like that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> all right, Zach, one more thing. That early, that early Kyler theory of I'll take all you sons of bitches when I go, when I go. You got something else for us that you uh, picked up? Young Zach, not anything else Zach. that you picked up from the film? Uh, I'm not. No, I think that covered. All right. So uh, first question, what did you learn? How will you apply? Uh, first, uh, well, uh, the script is obviously deeper than uh, I originally took away from much as the first half of Steven blowing my mind with stuff took place. So you do know that (laughs) you do. Well, and I'm sure you are aware of this, that stories can be told on multiple levels. Yeah. Right. So you can tell a story that is just giant robots that transform into cars and blow stuff up and take that on just the face value level. Right. Right. Then you can start looking for themes and messages that run throughout the film. And as we've talked about before, we as an audience are always going to put a meaning or a message on something, even if it's not even there. Mm-hmm. And so these things about duality, these things about vision, I'm, I'm not sure Polanski and town sat down and were like, oh, yes, yes, let's put these themes in here. Mm-hmm. Right. I, they may have, but I doubt it. Uh, I, there's an article I haven't read an interview with a town. Um, but yeah, so there's, can be a lot of different levels. And sometimes as, you know, as, as Freud would say, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Quit reading into it. It's just a movie. Sit down and enjoy it. You dumbass. Right. Um, in fact, Freud that was a Freud. That's a, that's, a, that's exactly a, the exact phrase. You're dumb sh- stump, uh, is what he'd say. Um, but. Um, no, he wouldn't call you. <laughs> <laughs> that, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Yes, I Steven. do know. I do know. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, you can read it on a def- bunch of different levels uh, is, is one thing. So you can go into, um, you can go in and write your story, hoping that people are getting the underlying message. I'm sure people like Grant Morrison today probably go in hoping that people find the underlying message, but sometimes it's just a story. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's one thing. What else? And how uh, are you applying what you learned? Uh, I took a lot away from the technical aspect, especially from uh, editing, because I love the editing and the pacing of this film. And it kind of, kind of, it just, well, it took convergential conventions of building suspense through uh, quick cuts and action through quick cuts and kind of just threw them out there and didn't use them to convey a a better story through the editing. And I think the editing of the long cuts um, uh, helped a lot in the movie and something to take away from. Uh, the, The lighting was a big deal. I loved the lighting, especially in those long shots and how meticulously they were planned out and, and then how that played through in rehearsals and blocking, but the lighting, how they had stead, staged lighting through multiple parts of the scenes to get the look they needed as characters moved oh, yeah. through. Yeah. I think to look at that and then just the staging of, of 
the actors on the screen was also a big thing to take away. All right. And the second important question that we ask every week, did your girlfriend watch it with you? Uh, no, I really tried to get her to come watch this one, but we had uh, both just come back from our Memorial Day vacation together with my family. And so uh, I thought I was going to watch this and she was like, uh, I'm going to go spend time with my parents. I said, okay. Okay. You're going to have to get her to watch one of these films eventually. No, I think I think the next two okay. will be will be easy sales. Yeah, and as we mentioned, uh, singing the rain. Singing the rain. Then, uh, I think we're going to follow that. We were talking on one of our other podcasts. That I think we will um, contrast that with uh, Baz Luhrmann's um, Moulin Rouge, mm-hmm. yeah. just because they're and both musicals and they're that, both very different. And I'm pretty. And I showed her Moulin Rouge one time, and I know she likes it, so I'm sure she'll be down with me. Okay, watching it again with me. All right, grade for grade for grade for Zach. Matthew? Who, who, me? Yes, you. Since we have no uh, Rodrigo this week. <laughs> what can I tell you, kid? You're right. When you're right, you're right. And you're right. So, you know, that's my Nicholson. Yeah, good on you, Zach. Uh, <laughs> I agree. Uh, good uh, good on you this week. I know you were doing some research. I'm going to point you to a couple of articles. Um, the Department <laughs> of English at Fredonia. Uh, so it's fredonia.edu slash department slash English. Hail Fredonia. Hail, hail Fredonia. Um, hey, you get that one, Zach. Yeah. You actually get that I one. I actually said that on my vacation this week. Hail, my hail dad Fredonia. had no idea what I was talking about. All right. Um, uh, they've, got a, they've got some really good looks uh, as far as the duality theme mm-hmm. for Chinatown. And then there's an excellent little article that I read, or it's a paper that was written by Mark Graves uh, in 2002 called The Film Guide to Chinatown. And that's where he talks about the vision theme. So both of these are coming out of uh, Fredonia. Um um and listeners if you want to know what we're talking about if you want to know what we're talking about make sure that you head back into the zach on film archives where we talk about a little film called duck soup duck soup duck soup duck soup and that's gonna wrap it up this week for zach on film make sure to head over to majorspillers.com and click on the uh podcast entry thing i am horrible you mean the post the post yes of course the post and leave your comments and thoughts on chinatown and then while you're there on major spoilers make sure to click that amazon link on the front page and head over to amazon where you can buy your very own copy of chinatown and glorious blu-ray or dvd if you still watch movies on that or stream it and uh but buy a tv buy a blu-ray player if you're still watching dvds and a little bit of that money will come back to Major Spoilers, but it won't cost you any extra. It'll just help us continue this podcasting expedition through film. And <laughs> uh, next week we talk Sing on the Rain as we talk more movies on Zach on Film. Okay, credits are finished rolling, Zach. You've graduated now, right? I did. I graduated. Did you get your diploma yet? Uh, has not come in the mail. I actually had to finish up some degree summary stuff for oh. my minor, but oh, it should okay. be coming in soon. All right. Well, time for your first assignment. We've talked about this before, right? Mm-hmm. That I was going to have you take a scene or create your own scene or something and shoot it. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually, this past week, finally picked up uh talked myself into upgrading to the Canon 5D Mark III. This is a digital SLR camera that uh, shoots fantastic HD video as well as stills and really is the kind of the way that I see that we're seeing all media gathering going is to some digital okay. SLR form of some sort, whether that be a 4K RED camera or, you know, something from Canon or Nikon or Sony or whatever. Agreed. Uh, and before I've had these two uh, Canon 5D Mark IIs that I've been using. Now I have three cameras. I don't know if I'm going to sell one of them or not, but I've certainly got two of them now, and I've got a three for a three camera shoot, hint, hint, people, you might want to subscribe to the subscribers channel. <laughs> but for your first assignment, I'm going to loan you, this is not a gift, but I'm going to loan you oh, man. Uh, one of my 5D Mark IIs. Okay? So okay. in this kit, you're going to have to take care of audio on your own because these have real crappy audio on yeah. them. Okay? So I'm going to assume that you can get a microphone of some kind. Yeah, I'll get it. Or do some uh, double system sound. You know what double system sound is, right? Yeah. Okay. So in this kit, I have two batteries, a charger... A 16 gigabyte uh, compact flash card for you to record your stuff on. It's not yeah. going to record a whole lot of stuff. 
Uh, and to put a little bit tighter on you, a 50 millimeter prime lens. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So it means that you can't zoom out to get a wide shot. You can't zoom in to get a close up. Mm-hmm. You got a 50 millimeter, um, lens on this 5D Mark II. And your task is to shoot a intense conversation between two people. Okay. Okay. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. So yeah. it can be something from a movie that you've already seen or something that you write yourself. But uh, you have one month. Oh, man. One month from today. Today's right. record date is May 28th. So you have until June 28th to turn in a two-person conversation. That's exciting. You're going to post it on our Major Spoilers YouTube channel. Yes. And everybody's going to watch it. Hopefully. Hopefully. Okay. Yep. Sound like a deal? I like it. Okay. We're going to see how well Zach does this. We may be checking in on a weekly basis just to see how you're doing. Good idea. I'm going to guess next week you're going to have a scene picked out. Yes. Yeah, just a scene. It doesn't have to yeah, be, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole movie. We're looking for something, you know, I don't know, two to five two, minutes. Two to five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that you can shoot, taking into account a lot of these things that you've already talked about. So next week, come in with your script. All right. Okay. Gonna happen. All right.